Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 12. This is week number 30 in our series in Acts. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit in and among us be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, last week we were in Acts 11, 19 through 30, a new name for a new people. And we asked, who are Christians? And, and it wasn't exhaustive, but from our text, we saw that Christians are people who believe the gospel, people who share what they've been given with others, and people who remain faithful to the Lord. And we talked about uh, looking in a mirror at ourselves, um, seeing where we fall short, but more importantly, looking through the window to see Jesus and uh, the fact that Jesus um, believed his father. Jesus shared what he had been given and Jesus remains faithful to his people. We're in Acts looking back at what God has done through the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, what God is doing now and in the future through his work, through the work of the Holy Spirit, looking back to what he's done, looking ahead, looking forward to what he, he will do. Indeed, Acts, just like all of God's word, orients us to the truth, truth that both holds us back, but also truth that moves us forward, pushes us forward. Um, I don't think we've got any economists out here today, but we've probably all heard the expression, a leading economic indicator, a leading economic indicator. And one of the uh, leading economic indicators uh, in employment, uh, people talk about the people that are the last hired and the first fired. You want to know how the economy is doing? Look at people who are the last hired and the first fired. Well, in the Christian life, I believe that prayer is a leading economic indicator. Sadly, prayer is often the, the last thing to show up. It's the first thing to go. In other words, it's the last hired, the first fired. Now, when asked about our prayer life, I think many of us would respond with these words, I believe, help my unbelief. Back in 2010, the church hosted, uh, at the time, it was called a prayer life seminar, a praying life seminar, and it was based on the book by uh, Paul Miller called A Praying Life. And if you may remember, we've talked about it before, but it, it, it was for wandering minds, nodding heads, and cynical hearts straining to pray. And as Bob Allams, who was with us a few years later in 2017, said, the Prayer Life Seminar, indeed the, the, the book, A Praying Life, is for people who pray badly. What a great book. I mean, it's for people who pray badly. Well, our text this morning speaks, I believe, to our mixed feelings about prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. I think our text will help us uh, take a look at prayer in light of the power of the state, the power of the world, and the power of God. 
I think we can see that prayer could rightly be seen as, as the power of God's people. Well, let's get ready to be held back with the truth of what God has already done, and let's get ready to be pushed forward with the truth of what He is doing and what He will do as we look at what's going on in the center of our narrative. At the center is a prayer meeting, and we're going to take a look at what it tells us about the nature of prayer and the nature of the work of God. Let's look at the first five verses, the nature of prayer. Part one, I believe. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Well, let's set the stage. Here's a period, a lengthy period of peace that the church has enjoyed since the conversion of Saul. We saw that back in chapter 9. It comes to an end. There's a double assault. There's someone killed and one put in prison. And here's the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John. James is killed and Peter is arrested and put in prison. Herod here is the grandson of Herod the Great who was ruling at the time of the birth of Jesus. He's the nephew of Herod Antipas who, who, had, uh, who knew Jesus and tried Jesus. James is the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. Again, the inner circle of Jesus' closest disciples. James is executed. Peter is arrested and imprisoned. Why? Well, it's looking like Herod is trying to curry favor with the Jews. He's a politician. He's got some Jewish lineage. He's trying to please the Jews and to obey as it were, Jewish law, it's going to persecute those Christians? Well, we saw last week, it was in Antioch, that those, those people that followed Jesus' disciples were first called Christians. Well, here, you don't see Christian, but what you do see, some who belonged to the church. Isn't that great? Have you thought about that? One of the definitions of a Christian, follower of Jesus, disciple, those people who belong to the church. We all know that people come to faith, as it were, just kind of what Aaron was describing. They need to be brought into the church. God, God saves them and then he brings them into the church. And we saw that in Acts chapter 2. So Peter was kept in prison. He's going to be kept in prison until the time when he's going to be brought out to face trial, and indeed to face death. It's a foregone conclusion. Herod was not going to kill him through this feast of unleavened bread tied in with Passover, just like Jesus. The politicians and the religious leaders were staying away from the time of the festival. It was going to be afterwards. And look with me at verse 5 at the end. There it is in the middle, but... So Peter's kept in prison. He's locked away. He's unable to do the ministry. He's in prison, but 
Kids, whenever you see the word but in Scripture like this, pay attention. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let me repeat that. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I think there is no better comprehensive description of prayer in the entire Bible. Let's take a look, a closer look at this prayer meeting. And what do we learn about prayer? First, prayer is to God. Prayer is to God. Prayer, like worship, has an audience of one. It's obvious, isn't it? But doesn't sometimes the obvious, we need to be reminded? Jesus addresses that. In his Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, go in secret. And your Father who hears you, go to your Father in prayer. R.A. Torrey in The Power of Prayer and the Prayer of Power says this, The day came when I realized what real prayer meant. Realized that prayer was having an audience with God. Actually coming into the presence of God and asking and getting things from Him. The realization of that fact transformed my prayer life. Before that, prayer had been a mere duty and sometimes a very irksome duty. But from that time on, prayer has been not merely a duty, but a privilege. One of the most highly esteemed privileges of life. Before that, the thought that I had was, how much time must I spend in prayer? The thought that now possesses me is this, How much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties of life? Prayer was made to God by the church. So prayer is together. Think about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is is the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father, teaches us to pray what? With and for others. With and for others, it's together. You're not alone. You're motivated together. It's not numbers, but it's unity of heart. Corporate prayer is in the center of the common life and work of the church as we've seen thus far. So prayer is to God. It's prayer is together. It's by the church. And notice that it's earnest prayer. Earnest. It's a strong word. It's an intensity of feeling. Thinking, will, it's almost loving God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. It's that idea. Praying with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's agonizing prayer. It's the same word that Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is described. Jesus is earnestly praying. And here the church is earnestly praying. It's to God. It's together. It's earnest and it's specific. It's for Him. But earnest prayer for Him was made to God by the church. For who? For Peter. It's focused on something. Because God's will is unknown, they were right to petition God on Peter's behalf. When we're unclear of what the will of God is, now we know the revealed will, But this is the hidden will. Pray boldly. If he hasn't revealed it, go to the throne of grace. Pray boldly. 
So here is this incredible, comprehensive description of prayer to God by the church. It's earnest prayer. And it's for him, for Peter. Now, each of these should serve to help remove our fear and hesitancy about prayer. But while they are praying, God is at work. You see, God works through means, one of which is prayer. God ordains both. Let's look now at the nature of the work of God as we look at verses 6 through 11. The nature of the work of God. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along the street And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Well, before we look at the rescue, let's look first at the rest. The rest. Back in Psalm chapter 3, verse 5, David's in a lot of trouble, and David writes this. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Peter is so at peace in prison that he is sleeping. Did you pick up that detail? Peter is sleeping. He's at peace. He's modeling this deep trust in the sovereignty of God. There's no sign of anxiety. There's no sign of alarm. You see, God is caring for his people in a difficult situation. Peter is so sound asleep that the angel has to strike him on the side to wake him. You see, Herod struck down James to kill him. And Herod and the Jews are going to want to strike him dead. But the angel strikes Peter to wake him up from a sleep. So the second aspect, in addition to rest, that God gives rest, he's also going to rescue, and there's going to be a supernatural deliverance. Notice that rescue came at the last possible moment. He'd probably been there several days, and it was the night before he was going to be brought out. You see, God waits as if to test the church's faith to the limit, and to emphasize his absolute power over his enemies. I was with someone uh, the other day, and we were talking about the the present work of God in his life, and I asked him, I said, what's God teaching you? What are you learning, and what, what do you need prayer for? And he was talking about waiting, patience, waiting. 
Isn't that a need for all of us? The need to be patient, the need to wait. You see, God's going to operate at just the right time to display his glory. When the time had fully come, we read in scripture, Jesus came. And when the time was right, Peter was rescued. Until then, he was in prison, being nonetheless sustained by the Lord. You see, rescue illustrates here the nature of spiritual deliverance through the gospel. Peter is asleep. Peter is in chains. Herod the king has done a great deal to make sure that Peter is secure and guarded. He probably knew that he and the others had gotten away before. It's not going to happen this time. It's maximum security. It's the supermax. There's no way Peter's getting out. I can't help but think Charles Wesley, when he was writing, and can it be, must have been thinking about this verse. Verse 4, you know, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. It's got to be thinking about this passage. In the midst of this supernatural work, there's some very natural things going on, like Peter's getting dressed. He's being led like a child. He's, he's drowsy and disoriented. And though he's awake enough to obey, he's not awake enough yet to understand. It's progressive. So we've been talking about Peter, but James. James was killed. Uh, you see, the rescue of Peter must be balanced with the death of James. And what can we say to this? Oh, Father... You are sovereign. What can we say to this? God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. You see, the difference between James and Peter is only for the short run, isn't it? Guess what? Peter's going to die, right? Just not yet. Because the longer run is this. There's going to be a glorious resurrection for both to everlasting life for those who are trusting in Jesus. Look at verse 11. It's, it's Peter's commentary on the event. Peter comes to himself. He comes, that is, to a correct interpretation of what has just happened. He affirms that the reality, the source, the result, and the purpose of the rescue all have to do with the Lord. Psalm 3, we read, salvation Belongs to the Lord. Jonah in Jonah 2 proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord. In Revelation, salvation belongs to our God. Peter understands. He's now confident. He's confident that they wanted him dead. But the Lord wanted him alive for his purposes. Now, in his structure, Luke wants us to make the connection between the prayer of the church and the work of God. And let's see how the church responds to the work of God as we consider another important aspect to the nature of prayer. And we'll see that something is missing, especially at first. Join with me now as I read verses 12 through 17. When he, that is Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. 
And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Peter interrupts a prayer meeting. Peter interrupts a prayer meeting at Mary's house. The people's, people react in two ways. Uh, but notice this, the answer to their prayer is knocking and they don't believe it at first. You're out of your mind. You could render that you are crazy. They reject it as the words of a girl gone crazy. You are mad. It's like the resurrection where reports of the women who witnessed Jesus' resurrection are discounted. They're rejected. So first reaction is you're crazy. No way. But then they get to a better answer. Ah, it's his angel. It's a more serious alternative, but it's still missing what God has done. But then they saw him and were amazed. They are astonished by the answer. Here, seeing is believing. Peter here is a witness, and he tells them that the Lord is responsible for his rescue. You see, our biggest problem with prayer is what we've seen exhibited here. It's unbelief. It can be prayer to God, together. It can be earnest. It can be specific, and yet... Still unbelieving. You see, our, our problem with prayer, my problem with prayer, is our lack of faith. It's the unbelief that still lurks in our hearts. You see, even when people were strong enough to pray for days on end and all night, they didn't have the faith to immediately believe that their prayers were answered. Prayer is eyes. It's vision that enable us to see God and his answers, however surprising. Those of you that have been with us for a while know that we have forward through prayer. The last forward through prayer was from last July. And under our provision was this. Give thanks to God for his provision of our present meeting place and ask him for the wisdom and the resources we need to secure a suitable permanent location where we continue where we can continue gathering to worship, to welcome, and to be equipped for witness. You see, that was a prayer request. And some of us were praying that very thing. And yet, lo and behold, in November of this past year, the Lord provides a building. We didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. We have been praying for it. And I didn't immediately see it as an answer to our prayer, but of course, now I and others do. So do we, as a church, do you, 
Do you go into prayer expecting God to be at work? Do you bring large petitions? Why? You're coming to a king. If our biggest problem in prayer is unbelief, what's, what's our biggest comfort then in prayer? What's our biggest assurance? It's got to be God's great faithfulness in the midst of our unbelief. One commentator says this, The humbling, even humorous humanity of these early Christians shows that the welfare of the church rests on God's faithfulness, not on our feeble faith. My friends, do you feel like your faith is feeble sometimes? If you're like me, it probably is. But isn't it wonderful to know that it's not the strength of our faith, it's the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is faithful. Look at the people in this. Peter leaves prison like a sleepwalker. Rhoda, the servant girl, forgets to let him in. The praying Christians were prepared to entertain any theory except the truth that God had answered their prayers, that the Lord would flex his arm to save such frail and foolish folk is a tribute to his grace alone. I'm so thankful Aaron shared the story of his friend, the student coming to faith in Christ by cracking open the Bible, right? There had been preparatory work to be sure, but salvation is of the Lord. His grace alone. It's grace from beginning to end. So Luke here is presenting prayer as the natural atmosphere of God's people and the normal context for divine activity. This passage should be both a rebuke to us. Stop being prayerless. Stop praying and not believing. But it should also be an encouragement to us. You see? God is at work. God is faithful. My friends, there is a time to sleep and a time to pray. Peter is sleeping and the church is praying. What a wonderful juxtaposition of truth. Peter is resting and the church is working in prayer. Here is the already and the not yet. The Christian life is a life of faith. Everything is by faith. William Lane writes this, If extended, fervent, united prayer is not a church's first resort in time of crisis, the church reveals that it's ultimately depending on something or someone other than God. My friends, what are you depending on right now? Are you depending on yourself, your ability? Are you depending on the circumstances are just going to change? As the something to think about, quote, makes clear. Who or what we're trusting in is revealed in our prayer life. Prayer is both a duty and a delight. It opens our eyes to see God at work. They are praying and we see joy from there. There's confident trust in praying. And when they see the answer finally, they are astonished. 
I wonder if Peter was comforted knowing that the church was praying for him. Well, you know what? It is a great comfort, isn't it, to know that someone is praying for us, right? As we sang earlier, Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is at the prayer meeting all the time, interceding on our behalf. Remember in Luke 22, he tells Peter, I have prayed for you. When you turn, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you. Jesus says through his word to all of us, I am praying for you. He ever lives above, the hymn says, for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood for me. Oh, my friends, in the midst of your unbelief in prayer, in the midst of I believe, help my unbelief rest confidently that there is someone whose response to prayer is not not I believe, but I hear you and I will answer you in a way that brings glory to the triune God. And brings ultimate good to you. Rejoice that he ever lives to make intercession. To pray for his weak and frail and feeble and struggling people. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. We thank you that in the midst of our big problem with prayer. Our unbelief in prayer that we have a big comfort in that you are faithful. Father, with that, as we've seen in this text, help us to know when we need to be sleeping and resting and trusting and let us know when we need to be working and praying and trusting. And, oh, Father, we thank you that throughout Scripture we see your rescue time and time and time again of your people done at such a time in such a manner that the only explanation is it's you. It's you. It's you. Oh, Father, would you grow our faith? Would you enable us to have prayer that's to you, that's together, that is earnest? and with people and situations in mind. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.